Have you ever pretended you didn't know something that you really knew? I can remember when my, uh, all my kids were in the diaper stage. There would be moments and times when my wife and I both pretended that we did not smell what we undeniably smelled in hopes that the other one of us would be the better parent. Living in gross denial. <laughs> Uh, as we move into this uh, portion of Romans chapter 1, we're going to see how the Gentile world is uh, doing that, but in a far more serious way. Living in denial, and as Paul is saying, suppressing the truth. Uh, the portions of Romans that we're about to enter is actually, it's, it's a difficult portion of Scripture. I mean, we've read quite a large part of it, in the portion of it in Romans chapter 1. Uh, this will be our fifth week now, uh, and so I know you're familiar with it. I, I have often uh, kind of wrestled with ending each week on such a serious, sobering note and then jumping straight into the message. Um, but now that we're moving into this passage, I think we'll begin working through it. We will see and we're going to feel the weight of these passages, uh, Romans 1, 2, and 3, because these passages reveal our condition apart from Christ. Uh, these passages of Scripture should humble us. They should give us a sense of urgency for the Great Commission. It should give us a renewed desire to live holy lives that reflect the holy nature that we've been given. Uh, but ultimately, these heavy passages of Scripture make the gospel shine incredibly bright. Paul is about to give us the bad news so that we can understand why we need the good news. He's giving us the bad news so that we can understand why the gospel is such amazing, life-transforming good news. So as we move into these passages, I know we, we all have kind of ideas of some of them, and there's certain verses or portions that stick out in our minds. And so if our desire moving into these, this portion of Scripture is like, yeah, Pastor, get them, you might be missing the larger point of what Paul's trying to accomplish here. In chapter 1, Paul is painting a picture of a Gentile society that has rejected God. And as we move through chapter 1, we will undeniably see that that's our society too. He's painting a picture of the Gentile world that has rejected God so his Gentile audience will know they need a Savior. So that they will undeniably understand they stand condemned and their only hope is Jesus. But he's also setting up his Jewish audience. His Jewish audience would have loved Paul speaking about the Gentile world that had rejected God because they thought they were better than the Gentiles. They're like, we're God's people. So as Paul is unpacking to this Gentile audience how these Gentiles have rejected God and how they've suppressed the truth and how God has given them over to this disgraceful passions, the Israelites and the church at Rome would have been listening to chapter 1 and been like, amen, Paul, get them. But then in chapter 2, he tells his Jewish audience that they're doing the same exact thing. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. The point of these chapters is to level the playing field and to show us that we all stand equally guilty. If we get through Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, and their self-righteousness in our hearts, something went terribly wrong. In chapter 1, Paul shows us the guilt of the Gentile world. In chapter 2, Paul shows us the guilt of the Jewish people, that even though they were God's people, and even though they had the law of God, they're no better off. And then in chapter 3, he shows us how the whole world is guilty before God. There is none righteous, not even one. 
The gospel doesn't shine brightly to the person who doesn't realize they're in the dark. So Paul is going to very carefully and systematically show us how we're all in the dark. One writer said, before Paul set forth his message of righteousness by faith, he is showing us the need for it. And so today we're going to start working through this passage by looking at verses 18 through 23. But let's read all of chapter number 1 so we can see them in their context and then we'll dive into our study. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter number 1, hopefully you're familiar with with where that's at in your scriptures now. If you're new to the Bible, uh, if you need one, there's a black hardback one close by you. Feel free to grab one of those and use those. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, see me afterwards. I'd love to give you one uh, free of charge. We would love to put a copy of the Word of God into your hands so that you can study uh, throughout the week as we move through the scriptures. But let's begin reading Romans chapter number one, verse number one. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, and telling the good news about his Son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what was made, through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, 
and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurities, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust one for another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who do them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And Lord, even though we're going to be working through a few, a, a few heavier verses in scripture this morning, we are looking at mankind's need for a savior, Lord. And even though that's not a fun topic, even though that's a, a, a weighty subject, Lord, I pray that as we see the point of working through this, that your word would be a proclamation of good news. Lord, I know there are those in here this morning that are depressed. I know that there are many of us here this morning who have hearts filled with anxiety for a plethora of reasons, Lord. And I pray that as we work through this passage, Lord, and as, as, we, as we get to the end of the sermon, as we get to the, the, the point of looking at the bad news is so that we can appreciate the good news, I pray that the realization that you have not left us in wrath but have also revealed your love would be that good news, that it would bring that healing, that it would bring liberty. Lord, as we work through these weightier passages, I pray that your spirit would open our minds to understand and contemplate these things from your word. I pray that your word would give us life and strength this morning. Lord, we have no other strength but you. And so I pray that as we look into your word, it would give us that life and give us that strength. And I pray that your church would delight in your instruction and that your word would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we would be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams bearing fruit to your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Verse 18 starts with the word for, which if you remember, we said this last week, the word for connects what is about to be said to what was previously said. So Paul had just said that pl God's plan for righteousness was faith. 
the righteous will live by faith. Now he's going to show us why God's righteousness is needed. Paul is helping us understand, look, you're not good on your own. This is why you need God's righteousness. And he begins to make this point by showing us, first of all, that God has made himself known. God has made himself known. Look back at verse number 19 and 20. Since what can be known about God is evident among them. So this is evident. This is obvious. God has made himself known because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. God has very clearly made himself known to humanity. Now these verses don't tell us that God has revealed everything about himself in the created world, but that the created world has revealed his existence, that it has revealed his eternal power, that it has revealed his divine nature. The created world has revealed that there is a creator and that he is eternally powerful. The created world reveals there is an eternal, all-powerful God. I love Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever just gone outside at night and looked up at the stars? You can't really do that in Fresno because, you know, our air quality is just pristine. <laughs> you just go up to Shaver Lake or something and go stand out there at night and just look at all the stars. That is the heavens declaring the glory of God. The writer goes on to say, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, the heavens and the expanse pour out their speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard, but their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the end of the world. Creation undeniably points to a creator. Charles Spurgeon has a fantastic quote. He says, gazing upon the vast expanse of waters, looking up to the innumerable stars, examining the wing of an insect, and seeing there the matchless skill of God displayed in the minute or standing in a thunderstorm, watching as best as you can the flashes of lightning and listening to, I love this, the thunder of Jehovah's voice. Have you not often shrunk into yourself and said, great God, how terrible art thou? Not afraid, but full of delight like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth, his father's wisdom, his father's power, happy and at home, but feeling oh so little. Creation undeniably points to a creator. Psalm 19 and this quote from Spurgeon help us to see and feel the glory of God in the created world. But Spurgeon's quote, and I would argue the writer of Psalm 19, th those thoughts are coming from a redeemed mindset. Creation itself does not redeem us. It just reveals that there is an eternally all-powerful God. By way of illustration, William Blank, uh, who was a poet, but by no means a Christian, I believe he was actually a pantheist, he wrote a poem that I think better reflects the reality of creation revealing a creator. As William Blake considered a tiger, the animal a tiger, one of the most powerful animals in the jungle, he shuddered to think, what type of power would have created such a display of prowess and power? The poem is called The Tiger, and it was written in 1794. And if you're not used to poetry, really lean in and pay attention, because I love this poem because it reflects 
the shuddering thought at who could have made such a powerful animal like a tiger. He says, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distance deep or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? When thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What hammer, what chain, and what furnace was thy brain? What anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright, in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? William Blake looked at a tiger and its fierceness and its strength, and he shuddered to think, what could have made this? But his poem also shows us that he intrinsically understood something did indeed make that tiger. And it is something fierce indeed that is beyond my comprehension. Creation undeniably points to a creator. Paul is showing us in Romans 1 that creation is how humanity has been made aware of the existence of God. And since they are aware of the existence of God, he says they are without excuse for not worshiping him. But he also shows us that instead of worshiping God and living in gratitude towards God, the unrighteous world suppressed the truth about God. Suppressing the truth is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater and denying it floats. Like you can try and you can hold it, but as soon as you slip, it's, it's floating. That's what suppressing the truth is like. I read a New York Times article uh, this week that was, it was actually written back in 2006 that was reviewing Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. If you know anything about him, he is a devout atheist. Um, the article that was doing the review from the New York Times was not written by a Christian, but I found this article very interesting, and I thought it illustrated suppressing the truth really well. The article says, we know that our universe burst into being some, three, some 13 billion years ago. The theory of the Big Bang, as it happens, was worked out by a Belgian priest, and that its initial conditions seem to have been fine-tuned so that life would eventually arise. Now, the writer says, if you're not religiously inclined, you might take these as brute facts and be done with the matter. But if you think that there must be some ultimate explanation for the improbable leaping into existence of the harmonious, bio-friendly cosmos we find ourselves in, which I do, <laughs> then the God, the God hypothesis is at least rational to adhere to, isn't it? So this unbelieving writer is saying, if you need an explanation for how everything came into being, for how just out of nothing, an explosion, and then this perfect world was created that perfectly fits, that's perfectly suitable for life. If you need an explanation for that, God makes sense. But as Richard Dawkins says, no, it's not rational. The, the writer goes on to say about Dawkins, no, it's not, says Dawkins. Whereupon he brings out what he views as the central argument of his book, 
To posit God as the grounds of all being is a non-starter, Dawkins submits. For any God capable of designing a universe carefully and foresightfully tuned to lead to our evolution must be a supremely complex and improbable entity who needs an even bigger explanation than the one he is supposed to provide. So because Richard Dawkins can't fathom God's power, he's choosing to believe he doesn't exist and just be okay with the fact that there's no explanation. Because he can't fathom God's power, he's choosing to believe that God doesn't exist. That's what it means to suppress the truth about God. That's what we see happening here in Romans chapter 1 that the Gentile world is doing. They see God's eternal power. They see it evident. It has to be. And they say, no. Creation reveals that there is a God that's bigger than us. That's more powerful than us. And that scares people. That scares mankind to the point they would rather suppress the truth. You see, humanity's problem is not a lack of access to the truth. Humanity's problem is not that God has hidden from us. The Gentile world, specifically in Romans 1, problem is that we have seen God. And instead of worshiping God because he's fearful, we've turned and worshiped ourselves. You see, God is at work to show himself in the world, and yet the world is in rebellion against him, which leads us to our second thought this morning. God has made himself known. But instead, humanity or the Gentile world deliberately worshiped creation. Look at verse 21 of our text. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. The word glorify God means to worship, to ascribe to him what he is due. When we see creation, we should glorify God. We should worship him. We should recognize his supremeness. We should recognize his power and fall on our feet in worship. But instead of doing that, the Bible says, instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, animals, or four-footed animals and reptiles. Now, the lack of gratitude in verse 21 is not simply a case of bad manners, okay? This isn't because the Gentile world didn't say, thank you, God, before they ate their dinner. <laughs> this is a refusal to accept what God has done for us and around us. This is a refusal to, 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 to recognize that this is from God. This is a result of suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth is to not show gratitude. That means I'm not going to recognize God has given this to me. Now, Pastor J.D. Greer made a helpful statement about this verse. It's, it's easy to, to, to read this and to hear these arguments and think, man, everybody that doesn't believe in God really is just angry and doesn't want to believe he exists. But J.D. Greer has a helpful qualification here. He says, I'm not saying they are not people genuinely convinced that they are atheists. There, there are people who are genuinely convinced that this is true. He goes on to say, I am saying that according to Romans 1, that atheism is driven by a subconscious desire not to know. Everybody in their hearts knows the truth, but we don't want to admit it to ourselves. So some of us convinced ourselves that there is no God. We don't like the thought of an all-powerful ruling God, so we suppress the truth. 
When the lost world ceases to worship God and begins to worship itself, as we see in verse 23, they are ascribing to themselves worth that belongs to God. They are giving themselves honor that God deserves. God created the world, and he deserves worship. He deserves honor because he created all of this. And yet, instead, we, the lost Gentile world has suppressed the truth, and instead they worship themselves. They are giving themselves the credit for what God did by worshiping themselves. The lost Gentile world has turned away from the general revelation of God, and in so doing, they became plagiarists. They take the honor and glory only God deserves and give it to themselves. And by worshiping themselves, they're taking credit for creation. I'm going to ascribe ultimate worth to myself. And not even really to themselves, to images of man and to reptiles and four-footed beasts. What we did was, we instead of, we, we, we see God, we see he's beyond comprehension, we see he's beyond control, and that's scary. So what we do is, we worship things we can control. Images of man, four-footed beasts, reptiles, birds. And in humanity's so-called enlightened state, what we see is that worship doesn't actually stop. The object of worship is just swapped for something we can more readily understand or control. You see, people will worship. We were made to worship our creator. That's built into who we are. And so if we're not worshiping our creator, we will worship something. Tim Keller said, there has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance which is the resting place for our deepest hopes and which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever the thing is, we worship it, and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. Now, God has given us all things to enjoy, but the good things become bad things when they become God things. Only God should be given our ultimate affection. Only God deserves our ultimate affection. Only God has the right to demand our ultimate affection because he created us. Because we bear the very image of God, we represent God to the created world. But when we do not worship God, we mix up God's created order. Instead of being God's representatives to the created order, we worship the created order. And from heaven's viewpoint, Paul tells us this is foolishness. We're getting it all backwards. It's foolish to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, for pictures, for little statues of created things. This thinking is pointless, Paul tells us. And the hearts of those, and the hearts of those who have rejected God are dark, he says. Suppressing the truth about God is to remove our most fundamental foundation for living because we are not operating according to God's created order, God's created structure, being image bearers of God, representing him to the created world. We have now mixed it all up and we're now worshiping the created world, taking what was on the bottom and putting it on the top. And it ha- we have suppressed the truth about God and we re- we've removed our most foundational, our fundamental foundation for living. This is why we see our world in such moral confusion. And this is nothing new, church. It's easier for us to look around and feel so overwhelmed and say, man, it's all going down the toilet, but it's been going down the toilet since Paul wrote this. This is nothing new. 
This is what mankind does as it rejects God, as it suppresses the truth about God. It leads to moral confusion and moral relativism because if there's no absolute being who has the authority to say what's right and wrong, who gets to say what's right and wrong? If there is no God who as creator, who has the right to determine right and wrong, good and evil, where can we get our moral absolutes? Where can we get our sense of, well, this is what's right and this is what's wrong? Uh, Greg Brance, Banson, Bonson, Banson, I think I'm saying his name right. He had a great quote. He said it originally in a debate, and then he put it in his book called uh, Presuppositional Apologi- Apologetics. He, he, he has this quote that helps us understand what, it, what, what we're talking about he, here. He says, imagine a person comes in here and argues, no air exists, but continues to breathe air while he argues. Now, intellectually, Atheists continue to breathe. They continue to use reason. They continue to draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe. They continue to make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values. But the atheistic view of things would, in theory, make such breathing impossible. They are breathing God's air all the time. They are arguing against him. So when we take away God... We have no foundation for anything. We have no way to say this is right and this is wrong. And that leads to all the type of confusion that we're going to see over the next few weeks. And the sad reality of this type of idolatry is that it always leads to slavery. We think it gives us freedom, but it does just the opposite. Galatians 4.8, in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. You're literally enslaving yourself to creation, Paul says. God has made himself known, but instead the Gentile world deliberately worshiped creation. And thirdly, we see as a result, God's wrath is revealed. Look back at verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They try to stuff it down. Now, when we think about wrath, we tend to think about the type of anger that flies off the handle, don't we? (laughs) The images that come to mind are ones of impulsive outbursts. We think of people who are just flying off the handle and losing control. But the the word that's used here for wrath signifies a settled and abiding condition. The wrath of God is perfect. It's settled and controlled. This word does not portray a God who indiscriminately flies off the handle or zaps anyone who happens to be close with the bolt of lightning, okay? I have a certain child who will remain unnamed for their own sake, who if they could would indiscriminately hurl bolts at lightning at anyone who gets close to them while they are mad, right? This child is upset and they so much as think you're looking at them, it's game over for you, pal. Pray for the safety of my family. Sometimes I'm worried. That's not what Paul's talking about here. In fact, Peter or Paul Scripture repeatedly tells us just the opposite, that the Lord is compassionate, Psalm 103.8, and gracious and slow to anger. One of the most consistent attributes we see of God throughout Scripture is slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. Scripture never says that God's abounding in wrath or that he's quick to be angry. (laughs) 
His natural disposition is one of compassion and grace and faithful love and slow to anger. In fact, we see this all throughout the Old Testament where we often give God the worst rap. It's actually the exact opposite. When people say that, I'm like, go read your Old Testament, pal. (laughs) He's slow to anger, repeatedly slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. We see this in Exodus 34. We see this in Psalm 145. We see this in Numbers 14, Jonah 4.2. We see this in Nahum 1.3. Over and over and over again, we see a God who is slow to anger. So when we see God's wrath, this is not this angry, I got him. I'm going to zap him. Good. No, as author Kent Hughes says, God's wrath is perfect as to its quality and object. In Romans 1, the wrath of God is simply, we're going to see this in the next few weeks, God giving people over to their disgraceful passions. That's God saying, you want it? Okay. I've warned you. I love you. Because I love you, I've warned you. But if this is what you want, We'll also notice here, we also notice here that the wrath of God is parallel to the righteousness of God. Verse 17 starts with the righteousness of God is revealed. And how does verse 18 start? The wrath of God is revealed. This shows us that the wrath of God being revealed, and this shows us that the wrath of God being revealed and the wrath that will be revealed is right. This shows us that it's just. It's fair. It's deserved. God's wrath is interconnected with his righteousness because the object of his wrath is godlessness and unrighteousness. You can't have God's righteousness without his wrath because his wrath is him executing justice. It's him doing what is right. And so our flesh struggles with this, I know, because we don't like to be on the other side of it. We don't like to think about it. But intrinsically, I believe in our hearts, we know this to be true. And intrinsically in our hearts, we actually long for this. We long for justice. In fact, when we see injustice, we cry out to God. We cry out for justice. This is part of what it means to be human. God built into us a desire for justice, a longing for things to be made right. You don't have to be a philosopher to understand that. You just have to be a parent of little kids. If something is perceived as unfair, like the world is coming to an end. And so what we see here is this wrath of God is actually woven into his righteousness. And when there is unrighteousness, God's wrath has to be revealed. The object of God's wrath is the the suppression of truth because truth is where there is freedom. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So as that truth gets suppressed, God has to respond to that. I also want to point out that the wrath we see here is not the final judgment yet. We'll see this more in chapter 2, but if you flip over to chapter 2 and look at verses 2 through 8, Paul warns us about this. He says, now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. We'll unpack that more when we get to chapter 2, but it's just reinforcing what we're seeing here. Wrath is connected to righteousness. Do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, 
and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. You see, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is helping us understand humanity's universal guilt. This is mankind's default state. This was you and this was me, mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul is giving us a warning that the judgment of God is coming, but right now God is extending kindness, restraint, and patience. And so there is a point where God will say, okay, I'll just let the society have what they want. And that is, a, that is a demonstration of his wrath, but it is not the final judgment yet. And Paul is warning us that it's coming. But right now, God is extending kindness, restraint, and patience. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, God is extending kindness to you. God is extending restraint to you. Because every one of us deserve to be punished for our sins. Every single one of us. Not one of us are excluded from that. Every single one of us stand condemned and guilty. And the fact that we're still breathing is evidence of God's patience and kindness and restraint. And God is extending that to you so that you can repent. So don't despise it, Paul says. Don't despise God. When you see this creator who is all-powerful, it's understandable how that might cause some terror. It's understandable how that might cause some dread in your heart. But don't despise that God because he is reaching out to you. He is extending kindness and restraint and patience. He is leading you to repentance. He is leading you to safety. He is leading you to salvation and to life. He is also showing you that if left unchanged, a state of unbelief will be, has to be judged. God's wrath is revealed. But I'm so thankful that that's not the only thing about God that's revealed. God doesn't only reveal his wrath. God's also revealed his love. And his love saves us from the wrath that we deserve. The wrath that we have earned. This is God redeeming us from the mess that we made and the justice that we deserve as a result. So yes, yes, God's wrath has been revealed because we're all foolish. We're all blind. We all have worthless thinking. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8 and 9, Christ died for us. So yes, the wrath of God is revealed, but Paul's going to get here, so is God's love. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved from the wrath that is being revealed. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved from the ultimate day of wrath when God in his righteousness assumes the seat of justice and judges the world for its wickedness. You can be saved from that wrath. Now I know this isn't a feel-good, pump-you-up-for-your-week type of message. <laughs> We're beginning to work through a heavy and sobering portion of Scripture 
and we'll, we'll be here for the next few weeks, so full disclosure, right? If you're like, well, okay, we got through it. Next week will be better. Uh, sorry. <laughs> We've got chapters, the rest of chapter one, all of chapter two, and a good part of chapter number three. Um, but the sobering weight of these truths is why the gospel is such good news. And that's why I'm not going to skip over it. It's easy to just get excited about the gospel, but sometimes what we do is we don't even know why we're excited about it. We just like to feel good, flowery, fluffy, and we're like, yay, the gospel, but we don't realize what we're being saved from. And the more we understand what we're being saved from, the more the gospel feels good. (laughs) So what I'm doing is, and what Paul is doing, and what God is doing is, he's giving us the context. He's showing us this is why the gospel is such good news. We can't start to unpack why we need the righteousness of God if we don't understand why we're so unrighteous to begin with. And if we don't feel the weight of these difficult truths, we won't appreciate the freedom of the gospel. So we can't skip. (laughs) Because if we don't feel the weight of this, we won't appreciate the freedom of the gospel. So each week as we work through these passages, let these passages serve as a reminder of what you've been saved from. If you're here and you're a believer in Christ, let these passages serve as a reminder that, man, this is what God saved me from. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for saving me from that. I couldn't save myself from that. Allow it to produce in your heart a spirit of humility. That's me apart from Jesus. There's no way I could have saved myself from that. My foolish heart was darkened and lost. I thought I was wise, and yet Paul tells me I was so foolish. Allow these passages to be a reminder of what you've been saved from. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, Let me encourage you to consider these truths very seriously. My goal is not to come up here and just be some fire and brimstone preacher and just, (laughs) that's not my goal. My goal is to work through the whole counsel of the word of God. And this is what God's, this is what God's word says. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, let me encourage you to consider these very seriously. And friend, let me tell you, we would love to help you do that. We would love nothing more than to walk with you on your journey of finding Jesus. We have a resource table in the back. Come see us in the back of the auditorium. We can answer any questions you might have or put some resources into your hand to help you find Jesus. We'd love to walk alongside of you as you consider the truths of Scripture. And to our church family, let me just say thank you for letting me be your pastor. Thank you for allowing me to preach the whole counsel of God, even though it's hard and it's difficult and it's going to be convicting. It's going to be messy as we work through it. But thank you for allowing me to preach the whole counsel of God's word. I love you, and I love being your pastor. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner beings through your spirit. And I pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. For those of us who are believers and we are in you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to strengthen us, that it would strengthen our inner being. And Lord, reading through Romans 1, we can look in our society and some days it feels like we are looking at Romans 1 live and on display. But I pray that even though that may very well be our reality, I pray that you would, your spirit would strengthen us that we would be reminded Christ is in me and that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we would be rooted and firmly established in love so that as we sang earlier, Lord, nothing can shake us. 
I pray that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and what the height and depth of your love. Lord, I pray for my friends who are in here or who may be watching online who don't know you. Lord, as we consider these truths, I pray that they would know Christ died for them and that they can be saved from wrath. And I pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts through placing their faith in you to receive your righteousness. I pray that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. I pray that all of us would know that your love, which surpasses knowledge, so that we can be filled with all your fullness and that your spirit would awaken our hearts to your love. Lord, as we go into our week, I pray that you would, your spirit would help us to believe that we have been given everything we need to be witnesses of Jesus. And Lord, we come to you not with wishes, not with, I, I, I don't know, this hope like, oh, I hope I win. But Lord, like we, we come to you because you're able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. We pray these things because they're in your word. We pray these things because this is what you call us to. We pray these things because you can do what we can't even fathom. We ask that your glory would be evident in this church, in this generation, and forever and ever. We ask this in your name. Amen.